session three, so we're going to do uh, question persuade and refer or QPR. And this is a suicide prevention trainer. Our presenter today is Caroline Ludy. She's from the National Alliance on Mental Illness, or NAMI, Minnesota. Uh, for Caroline, in her role as an educator with NAMI Minnesota, she provides mental health education, training, and resources for families and the general community. She's been with NAMI for the past two years, but has eight years of health research experience. She'll talk you a little bit more about herself as well. She also helps to coordinate the Multicultural Young Adult Advisory Board here in Minnesota and is driven to continue outreach on mental health issues to all communities, particularly those underserved, which um, fits also why she's here to do QPR with us. So um, please give Caroline a warm round of applause and welcome. Thank you, um, So as Nicole mentioned, I am from NAMI, which is the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Just before I begin, um, can everybody hear me? Because my voice doesn't always tend to project. <laughs> So I always want to make sure that you know I'm crystal clear because this is a really important subject matter. Um, and this is all too, I just want to make sure that my communication skills are fully employed. But uh, as Nicole said, so I've actually been with NAMI for just over two years, but prior to that, I was actually in community health research uh, for about eight and a half years. Um, mostly on, um, I did work in a couple of studies, but mostly worked with pediatric um, studies so, uh, as well as to um, AIDS research. So my foray into mental health is relatively recent over the last two years, but I've had personal experience um, with mental health challenges um, to myself. I do live with depression, but as well as my family. So I really think that it's important for me um, to address that because I think in terms of just the social stigma surrounding um, suicide and mental illness are still quite prevalent, but I'm glad that we're having this discussion. And I'm so happy that you know that, you, that Interventions such as QPR are being, um, you know, actually deployed um, throughout not across the, across the state but across the world as well too. And just a little bit about NAMI, um, we're actually a grassroots organization, and we've been around for about 40 years. Um, but really, our three primary things are is that we do a lot of uh, legislative advocacy as well as education. But primarily too, we have a lot of different support groups. Um, not specifically surrounding um, suicide in terms of suicide loss or bereavement. Um, those are separate support groups outside of NAMI. Um, but if you do go to our website, namimn.org, you will find a number of our support groups available there as well. And just before I begin, there's a couple of just like, housekeeping items. So everybody did get three handouts. So the first one, if you want to follow along the presentation, is just the PowerPoint. The second one, which I will discuss during the presentation, is a list of resources in the front and the back. And then as well, the third one is just an evaluation, but of course that's all at the end of the presentation. And lastly, too, if there's anybody here who is an educator, so in the state of Minnesota, over the last year and a half now, um, it's been mandated that all teachers receive at least one hour of suicide prevention training, and this does qualify for that one hour of licensure. So if anybody does require this, at the very front here, I do have a CEU, Continuing Education Credit as well, that you can submit um, to your board in order to get that um, licensure requirement. And just finally too, I always say, if you have any questions, 
please feel free, of course, um, to ask them because I'm one of those individuals where I don't ask a question right away, I kind of forget it. <laughs> and so as well, too, I want to make sure that everybody feels comfortable. If at all you feel distressed, or say during today's presentation, or you have any questions that I can't answer, I'd be more than welcome to direct you to the person at NAMI that can, or of course, additional outside resources as well, too. So what is QPR? Um, so QPR is question to sweet refer. They don't talk to me as Oh yeah, um, yes. Sorry, thank you. Usually you don't have a therapist in the audience. Um, I'm here and so a therapist. Also, we have um, Sarah Lentz who will be here in about half hour. So you know, appreciate that. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so QPR, question persuade refer. It's really a couple of things. QPR is an idea and an action step, but really it's not intended to be a form of counseling. And we see here there is a therapist in the room, but if you're not or you weren't able to treat or diagnose before you came, you won't be able to treat diagnose afterward. This is really a foundational course in suicide prevention, but it is intended to offer hope really through three positive action steps, QPR, which again I'll discuss a little bit later on as well too. So when I talk about suicide as well too, I have had intimate experience um, with the conversation of suicide with my own family members as well as a couple of friends. Before I was actually trained in QPR and before I dived into mental health research, I had no idea what QPR was or even knew that it existed. It's been around um, for about 20 years. It is an evidence-based research practice, but I actually employed techniques of QPR without realizing it. So it's really that we want to train anybody in the community, which we call gatekeepers. So that's anybody. You know, it's friends, it's family, it's teachers, it's faith leaders, anybody that can learn to help recognize somebody in the suicidal ideation by either thinking about suicide or they're planning it. And even if they're not struggling, understanding how to connect that person to resources and where they can get help. But before we talk about that, there's really a lot of, unfortunately, um, taboos surrounding suicide. It's really complex. We know that, you know, for a number of individuals, suicide is actually the result, not of one thing. It's not a result of one situational thing or behavioral thing. It's really the extension of a number of factors. But in a lot of cultures, uh, it's really stigmatized heavily and also very, as we always say too, it's still heavily um, associated with shame. But we do know that's a result of an underlying mental illness in the majority of cases. In some cases it's not. And sometimes too, suicide just happens seemingly without warning. That's not the norm. So I just want to address that as well too. There are warning signs and clues and situations and behaviors that we can look out for and help address that individual again who's in a crisis. But when we look at suicide, there's also these myths and misconceptions. And I want to talk a little bit more about some of the more common ones and why they're myths, and then address again now the realities of them too. So the first one is no one can stop a suicide, it's inevitable. Of course, we know that's not a myth. Um, we, know we, uh, sorry, we know that in this case too, reality is that if people do get that help and support that they need, in most cases, they will not go on to attempt suicide again. The second myth is that confronting a person about suicide would only make them angry and increase that risk of suicide. Again, the reality is 
if you actually confront somebody and talk to them directly, it actually opens up their ability to not only understand that somebody now is empathetic and somebody is there to address the situation, but it gives them the ability to talk about it too as well too. It makes it okay. And that's a really one thing I want to address as well too, because when we talk about suicide, people think, oh, if I talk to someone about the suicide ideation, now I'm going to put the thought in their head. But that's not the case at all. It actually opens up their ability and it allows that person to connect with somebody who actually understands in the case that they understand that they need to be connected to help. They don't understand what they're going through because nobody can understand what somebody who's considered suicide is going through, but they connect them, they can connect them to that help. The third myth is only experts can prevent suicide. Well, that's why we're here. So as gatekeepers, really you're at the forefront of why we as community members are needed to address the importance of helping anybody in a crisis. Because really as gatekeepers, really the main thing is that we want to address why is somebody considering suicide, but how we can connect them to hope. And that's really, really the underlying pervasive message surrounding QPR. So another myth is that suicide people keep their plans to themselves. This is actually a really big myth. We do know, of course, through nonverbal communication as well as direct communication, often people do communicate their intent. And in reality, we also know too that in about 70% of cases where people have gone on to complete suicide, the week preceding their attempt, they've actually given some sort of clue or warning sign. But I also want to address that one thing too, because a lot of times people want to blame themselves and say, what could I have done? Or what didn't I see? But we want to address that nobody is to blame. It's just that we want to keep in mind that there are warning signs and clues that we can look out. The third myth, also the fifth myth, is those who talk, talk about suicide don't do it. In a lot of cases, people, again, they do go on to attempt or complete that, but they do talk about it in some way, shape, or form. And this is the last myth is that once a person decides to complete suicide, there's nothing anyone can do to stop them. Really, I want to talk about this is because as gatekeepers, it's really most often that people will talk to friends and family first before even talking to a professional. So really, we will talk about that suicide is the most preventable form of death, and it's really everyone's business. This is something that we can all address and that we can all talk about as part of here. Does anybody have any questions about these myths or any of the misconceptions? So now I'm just going to turn your attention just to some statistics. So these are all taken from the CDC, or Centers for Disease Control. But from about 2010 to 2017, the rates of suicide have been increasing. And we do know that suicide is always a public health crisis. I can't say this enough, it's a public health crisis. Um, and about one person dies every 11 minutes by suicide. But, so in 2017, just over 47,000 people in the United States lost their lives to suicide. But if you take that, actually, in account that in just to Minnesota, it's 783 people that lost their lives to suicide. I don't know the um, specific amount um, within um, cultural populations, particularly um, obviously the immigrant community or refugee populations as well, too. But this, in terms of generalization, 783 people did lose their lives to suicide in Minnesota alone. But when I talk about these numbers, too, I also want to say 
that within Minnesota, the rates of suicide have not only increased um, um, exponentially, they also increased um, fourfold in this case. So we do know that suicide has increased by about 40% from 2010 to 2017 alone in Minnesota. But when we look at suicide, we also have to uh, look at attempts on suicide as well, too. For every one person that does lose their life to suicide, there are 25 attempts. So this is what is known as a ripple effect. And when we talk about this ripple effect, we say that not only suicide, of course, affects that one individual who's lost their life to suicide, but it creates an enormous toll on those friends and family teachers, faith leaders, those most connected to that individual. So it's devastating. And for Minnesota alone, if you times 25 by 783, it's just over 19,000 people that attempted suicide last year alone. So again, it's quite a number of people. This is something that we always need to be talking about, but it's quite pervasive as well too. Now we're going to look at some suicide clues and warning signs. But just before I talk a little bit more about this, the two things I also want to emphasize that we as gatekeepers, I always want to talk about hope and connectedness. When an individual feels really connected, not only to their friends, to their family, but also to their community, this is where gatekeeping is really, really most important. Because as a gatekeeper, not only now do we have the knowledge of looking through these warning signs and these behaviors, but through the empathetic um, compassion that we show towards an individual, we can offer that hope and again, that sense of connectedness. Because hope and connectedness are really one of the two key protective factors that help protect against uh, suicide attempts, and as well to research has shown through completed acts as well too. Um, individuals have often said, a suicide note hasn't been left, but that hope wasn't there. But if hope is there, often a person does. I decided to kill myself. I wish I were dead. If X, Y, Z doesn't happen, then I'll kill myself. And in a lot of majority of cases, people don't really use direct verbal clues, but in some cases they do. And these are, again, clear um, channels of communication. But on the other end, uh, people will actually use indirect or coded clues. And um, some examples of these are, I'm tired of life, I just can't go on. My family would be better off without me. Who cares if I'm dead anyways? I just want out. I won't be around much longer. Soon you won't have to worry about me. And oftentimes when people are talking about indirect verbal clues, they usually use the coded forms of a goodbye. Does anybody have any questions about these direct or indirect verbal clues? These are just some examples. Again, we want to say that these are just signs to look out for, or clear channels of communication to look out for too. But people will express their intent, usually, um, again, indirectly, through those goodbyes, or they really see no tomorrows. So a lot of times people are feeling hopeless, or worthless, or in many cases as well, feeling
So these are some of the payroll clues that I'll talk about as well too. So these are really the, the primary factors we'll talk about when we talk about those warning signs to look out for. Again, it's not an exhaustive list, but these are the ones that have been um, considered uh, most at risk for people. So a previous suicide attempt. This one's at the very top because an individual who does have a history of a previous suicide attempt, they are more likely to attempt suicide again. However, as I said before, in most cases, people will not go on to die by suicide who do go on to attempt suicide. Acquired a gun or stockpiling pills. So this one is what we call means. So for a lot of people too, um, stockpiling pills includes over-the-counter medication, um, but also too, they may Google anything about talking, writing, or drawing about death, or collecting means. I mean, talking about means, really talk about guns. And we'll talk a little bit more about um, how means and suicide both play a role. Co-occurring depression, moodiness, hopelessness, or unexplained anger. And I kind of just want to break this down um, for, again, individuals who are often contemplating suicide. It's really hopelessness and worthlessness and helplessness that they're feeling. And again, untreated hopelessness, which is, again, a person sees no tomorrow, is associated with depression. And untreated depression, again, is a primary risk factor for suicide. Also unexplained anger, and I want to put that kind of into perspective too, because lots of times when I give this presentation, um, I'll give it to teachers, and for a lot of students, you'll see that not only they might have a change in their behaviors, all of a sudden they're once a quiet student, they become more impulsive, they become more irritable, or sometimes even more irrational. And you see these extreme shifts in behavior, and so that individual as well too, maybe again going through an underlying mental illness issue as well. Um, putting personal affairs in order. And for this one, if anybody feels comfortable, can they kind of tell me what they think that this may look like, putting personal affairs in order? So, so like reorganizing personal wills or just making sure that, what, 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 for example, my life insurance will cover my wife and, and my daughters or something like that. Exactly, right? Um, just to ensuring that that person um, that or the family, their community is taken care of after they pass on. Um, giving away prized possessions. Can anybody else tell me kind of what this may look like? Like if you have a pet or something, putting it in care of somebody or any other belongings, giving them away. Yeah, anything really cherished or really treasured, right? Um, in the case of my friend that I actually spoke to, um, and she does know that I tell this story. She was actually a scrapbooker, um, and she gave away the scrapbook collection. And that was really, to me, uh, a really, uh, not a subtle clue, it was really intentional, and that was something that, to me, was a wet, a wet flag. We actually never talked um, before about her, some of her challenges, because she never wanted to address them. But after that, I asked her, are you doing okay? What's going on? And then this was that conversation did come to play there. So it's really something to that individual that's most prized. Again, for example, like the pet. Sudden disinterest or interest in religion. Um, but the one we want to focus on is drug or alcohol abuse or relapse after a period of recovery. In the majority of adolescent suicides, um, particularly too as well in cultural populations, it's really that drug or alcohol abuse is 
identified as a cause of a suicide attempt, or in this case, a cause of somebody that dies by suicide too. And as well, um, sudden movement or unexplained peacefulness. So this one is kind of hard to understand for a lot of people, but for an individual, they decided that they are going to complete suicide. They actually have a shift in mood where they feel more at peace. And in reality, what we want to see is a natural progression to that individual's um, contemplation with suicide. Because it means that they haven't addressed that underlying issue. So these are some situational clues that we can all look out for. Again, it's not an exhaustive list. Um, being fired or being um, expelled from school. And we do know, too, that for a lot of students, you know, these academic pressures are quite high. And, you know, it's not just what parents think sometimes is just one bad grade or, you know, it's, but it's a culmination of things, too. Those academic pressures can really force an individual to think about contemplating suicide. Um, a recent unwanted move, and for this one, we do know that depression can form relocation. And this I often talk about to in individuals that have gone through um, either a relocation from another country um, as well too, because now they've lost their family unit. So they can endure not only now a sense of you know isolation socially, but they're not connected to either the language, not connected to the culture, not connected to their family. So they can get what is known as relocation depression, which can actually lead to suicide. Loss of any major relationship. So this can not only be you know, a caregiver or a parent, but it can be a teacher, again, it can be a faith leader, it can be a coach. It can be anybody that that person feels the most hope or that sense of connectedness to. Another situation is death of a spouse, child or best friend, especially if by suicide. And these individuals are actually what are known as suicide loss survivors. And in the majority of cases for these individuals too, they're actually um, at higher risk of um, suicide attempts just because of their close proximity to that person who has died by suicide. And diagnosis of a serious or terminal illness. And this is only like the thing um, now as well too, for individuals who experience more serious chronic diseases and the individuals even so far, somebody who has diabetes or cancer. But as well, we also like to think about the older population. A lot of times, too, for elderly populations, uh, they think of themselves as being a burden, of course, which is not the case. But when they're contemplating suicide, not only have they had a sense of oftentimes social isolation, resulting in the loss of health or the loss of their friends. And when we talk about this um, burden in the elderly population, it's really the um, most affected are those um, males over the age of 85. Because males actually have a higher um, suicide completion rate because they use more lethal means, whereas females have three times more attempts. Some additional situation clues are sudden unexpected loss of freedom or fear of punishment. Um, so when I talk about unexpected loss of freedom, I also want to kind of parlay this back to um, individuals who, um, in the cultural communities we talk about, and they may have had um, either, like that, again, that sense of family isolation um, because they're being moved from one country to another, 
but also too, um, when we talk about fear of punishment, these are recently incarcerated individuals as well. But anybody who really faces public scrutiny, um, in a sense, when I talk about this, um, we we look to social media because oftentimes that really is a huge culprit, and a lot of times not only for youth, um, but just anybody. Um, when they're scrutinized in public, or you know they have that sense of shame, that can also um, increase that suicidal ideation for anybody who's struggling with a mental illness. Anticipated loss of financial security. Of course, this can be um, individual. Also, too, we do know that during times of economic recession, historically suicide rates do go up. Um, as I said before, the loss of that um, community unit or family unit, friends or family, um, and the fear of becoming a burden to others. So, now we get into the QPR, so the tips for asking the suicide question. And really what I emphasize is, it's not less about how you ask, it's that you actually ask that question. And this is where normally, if we had more time, we go through kind of a role-playing scenario, because you can talk about it all you want, but if you don't practice the QPR, it's really not um, as easy as people may think. And it's really something that you have to practice again and again and again. You know, not only to feel comfortable, but important, again, to help that person get that help that they need. Because it can be really anxiety-ridden. Um, in the case of my, my brother, um, I talked about him as well, too. Even though, you know, he's my brother, I love him. Um, it was still something. For me, it was quite difficult to have that conversation. But we had it. But I didn't practice it. But I really encourage anybody to practice it. The first thing is, if in doubt, don't wait. Ask the question. And I want to talk a bit more about that, too, because if in doubt, don't wait, ask the person. If the person's reluctant, you say you really want to be persistent. And when I talk about persistence, persistence is something that may seem easy, but it's really the idea of persistence is something that is not easy. So in the question of asking those tips or asking that question, we can allow the person to talk freely because this is a time when somebody is not only at their most vulnerable, they're also at a time when you don't want to be judged or you want to really show that concern and that empathy for that person as well. So you want to ensure that you have time um, in allowing them to talk freely and most importantly, openly. And then as well, give yourself plenty of time and have your resources handy. We have phone numbers, which I'll talk a little bit more about that too. But, um, Within the seven metro county area, there's uh, these crisis numbers that you can be connected to 24-7. And I actually wanted to talk a little bit more about these um, the crisis numbers, too, as well, too. There are interpretative, um, interpretative services available for them as well. Um, but another number I want to talk about, which was addressed in um, the Coles presentation, is a National Suicide Prevention Hotline. That's 1-800-273-TALK. You can text or call that number, too. Currently at this time, it's only available um, in English, um, in both text and calling. But again, there's a trained counselors, 24 seven that you'll be connected to, and it's confidential and anonymous too. There is sometimes a direct approach, but some people prefer a less direct approach if they are a little hesitant or maybe don't know how to ask directly. The less direct approach is, have you been unhappy lately? Have you been so unhappy that you've been thinking about ending your life? Another way is, do you ever wish you could go to sleep and never wake up? So just 
looking at that second question, can anybody tell me why that one could be so important? I guess more to just kind of reframe it. For someone who lives with depression, could they say yes or no to this? What is easier for them to say? Would it be easier for them to say yes or easier for them to say no? This question. Yes. 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 Yeah. So most likely they would say yes, and often the case too. That's kind of that red, um, that warning sign that goes off in our mind. So if we know that they are living with depression or they indicated through this question that yes, they wish they could go to sleep and never wake up, then we know that they do need to be connected to professional help. So again, that's a little bit less direct approach to kind of uh, ease that individual in and ask them that suicide question. But really what we want to get at is the more direct approach. Again, those clear communication channels. And the one I really want to address is are you thinking about killing yourself? This is really key. If we can ask that question directly, again, you don't put the thought in that person's head, but if we can ask that question directly, most oftentimes, people who are thinking about killing themselves will say yes. But again, it's not as easy as me just being up here and saying, yeah, are you thinking about killing yourself? It's not as easy as just asking that question. If you can't ask the question yourself, I would say find someone else who can. And there's a couple of things we can do on not to ask the question. And the reason that we talk about this is because this is actually, um, through again this evidence-based research, these have been questions that have been identified that people have asked. And we're not trying to embarrass anybody. Um, these are ways that we can really ensure that we're getting at the heart of the issue, but we're not ensuring that the person is judged or feels vulnerable or is, again, um, feeling embarrassed that they, again, are considering suicide. But this is a person's life that we're thinking about. So these are ways that people have um, asked a question, but it's really how not to ask a question. You're not suicidal, are you? Yeah, this has been asked. So why is this problematic? Well, it makes it hard for them to say yes. Yes, not only that, too, but also to we're really addressing that we don't want to help them because this is, gives us an easy way and out. So we're we're kind of ambivalent. We're like, are you suicidal or not suicidal? But I don't really want to address this question. So if you say no, okay, then that's good. I don't have to talk about it again. But we all know in reality this is a way not to ask a question. Another thing is you wouldn't do anything stupid, would you? Other times people have said, you're just kidding, right? So, again, this is really problematic because not only now have we called that person stupid, and of course they're not, but we've put that person who's in their most vulnerable state now in a place of judgment. Suicide in anybody's life is not to be judged. Again, this person is going through so many things that we don't know about, we, we can't even begin to know about, but we can begin to empathize with that person too. So we really want to try to be open-minded when you want to listen to that person and not judge them. So now we're in the second phase of QPR, so we're at the peak persuasion. 
And again, when we talk about persuasion, I also want to underline with persuasion comes persistence. Because this is something that for most individuals, when you do ask a question, they do need follow-up. And that's that key of being persistent as a gatekeeper, as that community member. You're there to help guide that person to the resources. You don't have to hold their hand, I say, but in this case, too, you're there to connect them. So you're there to help persuade them. So we can listen to them and give them our full attention. And when we talk about listening, really what we want to do is ask those open-ended questions and ensuring that when we get them in that conversation, that they're there to talk, but also, too, that we can also use additional time in order to connect them to those resources, too, as well, too. Do not argue or judge or give advice. And when I talk about um, giving advice, a lot of times people will say, you know, your family cares about you, or, you know, what about your friends, or what about, you know, tomorrow? But in that person, when we talk about suicide, suicide for that person is really that means to their end. So for them, really, suicide is the only way out. But we do know a lot of things too. When we talk about suicide, it's really a person doesn't want to end their life. They really just want to end their pain and their despair. So that's why when we talk about giving advice or telling them there's so much to live for, we don't want to put that person in a place of vulnerability. We want to put that place in, person in a place of hope and redirect them to thinking about life. And again, tell them your story that things are so hard. And when I talk about this too, really we want to address the underlying issue is we want to know that person is able to get help. So when we talk to them, we want to ask them, how can I help you? Or what can we do together? And really want to involve that person in their decision making. Because a lot of times too, people when they're in suicidal ideations, they're not really self-aware. The, the, the idea of self-awareness has actually gone out the window. So as gatekeepers, we're kind of here to redirect that person to thinking about their awareness of their own life, but also their awareness of how they can actually get the help that they really um, need to. Yeah, um, I'm a too, some people won't want to get help. And we have to respect that as well. 
I want to address that too because a lot of times people might be afraid of the consequences per se of addressing that suicide question or really saying that they are undergoing suicidal ideation because they might be hospitalized, um, they might have to be connected to the police, um, as well to they might just not know what's going to happen um, in that next step, right? So we have to respect that sometimes people won't want to get help, but we can also always be persistent and follow up with those individuals as well too. So that's why I say, um, so if they say no, and you really don't believe them, so this is the case where we don't back down. So it's not the case of being more aggressive, but the case of being persistent and just asking those open-ended follow-up questions about what is it that you need? Who is that best person that we can connect to? And again, in most cases too, there won't be a mental health professional on hand as there is today. So you can let them know that there are mental health professionals and resources that they can be connected to. So I want to talk a bit more about this handout. In that phase, these resources are come really handy. Um, and even if you can put them on your phone, that's really um, one of the best spots as well too. So when we talk about refer, I also want to talk about what we do if somebody is in a crisis. So when do we call 911? If in doubt, and you don't know a person is suicidal or not, you should call 911. And when I talk about calling 911, one of the things that we really should mention is that you should ask for a mental health, or tell them that's a mental health emergency, and ask for a CIT trained officer. So these are crisis intervention trained individuals. They've had a number of hours where they've gone through, and they understand not only, of course, about mental health individuals, um, mental health and sorry, interventions, uh, but they can address various scenarios and situations as well, too. So normally those individuals that come to uh, wherever you are, so a person's house, they can go to the school, they're often plain clothes individuals, and they're really there to not only assess the situation, but can help de-escalate uh, the crisis as well, too. Um, there's also the county crisis team. So this is another form of mental health treatment, but when I talk about the county crisis team, it's a little bit different from um, 911. So these individuals as well, um, it's usually a trained therapist, as well as a, a licensed psychologist, um, as well as a member of the community. They'll come out to wherever, again, that individual is, but they'll give them an assessment um, anywhere from uh, a couple of days uh, all the way up to 35 days, and they'll assess the person um, whether or not they need to be hospitalized. Um, and so this can be as well to kind of a, a form of ongoing treatment or ongoing support if someone is not in a crisis. But really when we talk about refer, we want to include the individual in the decision as possible. Give them that autonomy to understand what is going on. And we really don't want to leave them alone in terms of leaving them alone so far as, as long as we can connect them to a source of support. So in terms of others, um, in the refer process, we want to get others involved. Um, and we want to ask a person who else might help. So that's why we really have those resources handy, either on our phone or, again, um, we have them written down somewhere. Because we really want to ensure that the person knows that they're included again in that decision. 
So really, how can we ensure that we just don't talk about QPR? You know, you can talk about it again as much as you want, but how can we really make sure that it's effective? So for it to be effective, we really have to, again, practice. And I keep saying it, practice, practice, practice. Because if we don't know how to ask a question, if we don't understand how to be more persuasive, again, not being judgmental or argumentative, and we don't have these resources handy, we can't, as gatekeepers, really prevent suicide. So for effective QPR, we want to tell the person, you know, I, I can be here for you, what else can I offer for you, but we want to ensure that we practice asking those questions as well, too, and understanding those resources, and looking even for more resources within our own communities as well, too. But when I talk about effective QPR, I also want to address the language of suicide as well, because there's that stigma and shame associated with suicide I talked about earlier, that taboo, it's because, as well, we also use negative language associated with suicide. So often you hear people say that someone has committed suicide or that it's a sin. But in, of course, reality, suicide is really the person's at their, their deepest, darkest. And we know, too, that it's really that they don't want to end their pain or suffering. This is really the only way that they see out. So when we talk about suicide, we want to say that someone has died by suicide or someone is even suicided. So that doesn't mitigate or minimize that that person who has attempted or completed suicide has actually uh, you know, been sinned against or been sinful. Again, this is just something for that individual that uh, they felt was their only option or their only way out. And when we talk about effective QPR, we really want to treat suicide as any other um, illness because you know, mental illness is also attributed to physical illness, just like a cancer, or someone who breaks their bone. So if someone is in the hospital, you know, if they're being treated for, again, a broken bone, often with all the phone cards, you know, visits, um, you know, we'll bring them food. But if someone has been hospitalized, you know, for a psychiatric evaluation or a suicide attempt, often, you know, really it's that there's silence involved or there's no conversation that's being, you know, continued. So we want to continue that conversation for that individual and let them know that they're connected to the community, that they are felt loved, and that they're not judged. Because this is the way that we kind of end, we always say, not only the discrimination surrounding suicide, but that silence and that shame piece as well, too. Because they want to treat this as any other illness. Yes? And now this with PHI, mm -hmm. that kind of information sometimes is People tell me they can't really share that. So if they're having suicide, nobody knows about it. That could make it worse. Mm -hmm. What what solution for that? That's actually a good question too. Um, in some cases as well, depending on the severity of the case, you can't always, in terms of the provider, disclose uh, what that individual has gone through. However, um, if you know that someone is say going through a crisis and you can, um, there's a it's called a mental health um, directive, and you can give them. Uh, they can give you a time to speak up on their behalf. If they have gone through a suicide crisis and they're on a hospital, they can give, they can, you can get permission to actually talk about it as well, too. Um, in the case, I know they get a lot as well, too, for PHI. That's a really good question. Um, but does that answer the question? Yeah, but the problem is, I think, is when, when they go through a struggle, mm -hmm. The neighbors don't know, the church people don't know, we have no clue what they're doing. And if we knew about it, it somehow, somehow it, may, it probably make it much better. Pastors don't know about it, you know, they, 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 it's like, you know, church and PHI and make it worse. So in this case, too, as well, when 
and talk about, I guess, the, the cultural stigma and shame of suicide. This is why we kind of have to address and just kind of talk about it more. Um, in those situations, we can't always know what that person is struggling with, but if we can kind of open up the conversation either you know at our church, at our school, um, that might address people that really kind of uh, talk about it more and um, be more aware of it as well, too. You know, it kind of is that, uh, you know, kind of catch-22 um, in terms of people not understanding that person's struggling, but at the same time, how can we talk about it more? We just kind of have to kind of start that conversation. So now I'm just going to go to uh, the bonus module. This is actually, we're um, looking at a mean restriction. So often uh, we talk about um, why people attempt suicide, but we're going to understand now, we're beginning to understand now how um, suicide plays a, a crucial role. So there's a, uh, a couple of case studies that I just kind of want to talk about too. So in um, Sri Lanka, um, just in the uh, early um, 90s, pesticides were actually the leading cause of suicide. Uh, and well, in the mid-1990s, um, so 1996, restrictions were placed on those high toxic pesticides, and suicide rates dropped by nearly 50%. So they estimate that about 20,000 lives were saved. However, when I talk about this too, it's really that suicide rates dropped by means of pesticide. So other means, really suicide rates did not drop. So by non-fatal poisonings or other means of suicide, there's no drop in suicide. But by means of pesticides, suicide rates did drop in Sri Lanka. The same can be said for the UK. So just before prior to 1970, there was carbon monoxide was leading um, cause of um, death by suicide in the, United, um, in the United Kingdom. But when they took out um, carbon monoxide in all gases, um, so essentially bringing the toxicity to zero, the rate of suicide by that method decreased by nearly about a third. So we're saying then that if we take away the means by which a person can uh, attempt suicide, complete suicide, the rates by those means drastically drop. So that's why talking about means is so important when we talk about suicide prevention. And this one really want to address in the United States, the most prevalent means is guns. Okay, but yeah. In that place also, did the total, you said the total suicides did drop in pesticides? So for Sri Lanka, the total number of suicides by means by pesticide dropped, but by non-fatal means, so by other um, methods of suicide, the rates actually increased slightly. So we just, we just took away. The same with the UK too, yeah. So for example, I, I don't want to see the type of means, um, but when the type of um, carbon monoxide gas that was used originally, um, when that toxicity was reduced to zero, suicide by that method, by gas, dropped. But suicide by other means still increased, even um, a little bit more. Yeah. So it's really, we want to see subtracting that type of means that is the preventative in this equation. Does anybody have any questions about that as well, too? Yeah. So total went down, but actually we reduced the means, right? The total went down. So the total number of suicides by that means went down. So the total number of suicides by gas went down. But suicide by... What about overall? But over, overall, no, suicide rates actually increased in both cases slightly. Yeah. So it had an impact, but it didn't have any impact overall. 
No, no, not in either Sri Lanka so or. They just, yeah. just reached the means. Instead of gas, they just choose something else. They switch to something, exactly. But we want to really emphasize means because a lot of times people don't realize that means do play a part as well in suicide. So the reason means matter is that suicidal crises are often relatively brief. We say that it's really an impulsive act. And a lot of times, too, when people are thinking about suicide, the majority of people that are thinking about suicide, it's about 25%. When they talk about the time that they have attempted suicide and time to think about it, only five minutes has elapsed. So when we talk about why means matter, it's really that we want to try to decrease that person's impulsivity to acquiring those means. And I want to offer to you as well that some suicide methods are far more deadly, are far more deadly than um, far more deadly story than others. So this is why that the means can be really a matter between life and death. So again, taking away those means is really crucial. In this case, guns. So it's not that um, gun owners and their families um, are more suicidal. They're just more likely to die by suicide because guns are more lethal. So they're three times more likely to die by gun. But one of the key things that we can do is actually reduce access to means. And it's actually um, a lot more simpler than people actually think. We have at NAMI is a black lockbox. Or there's also two, um, there's police stations, there's gun shops that actually lock away the gun. But these lock boxes that we have, they're coded. Um, they're not by keys because we do often know that people, you know, um, they don't really keep keys on them. Or if they do keep keys on them, they'll keep them around their neck. But often people don't know the codes um, to other people's um, um, you know, lock boxes or even, uh, say, for example, bank accounts. So. When we talk about reducing means, really the, the reason that we talk about this is we want to reduce means by reducing access to means. So there are simple steps that we can take. And some of these simple steps include, um, again, as I said before, um, going to the police stations, you can lock away the gun. Some people, though, they don't really want the gun to be taken away. So when we talk to those individuals as well, too, we can help them find solutions to maybe um, uh, sort of dismantling your gun. So we can put the gun in either um, one part of, uh, say, the trunk of the car, like we can dismantle the barrel of the gun, and put um, another part of the gun in that lockbox. Or, again, we can lock up the guns where an individual may not be able to find them. Because we talk about when we reduce means, suicide is a really impulsive act. So we want to take away, again, those legal means. And just one more thing I want to talk about, too, is uh, when we talk about just QPR in general, there are many gatekeepers in the community, but one of them that we really didn't address is that, you know, suicide affects anybody. And it actually, uh, Abraham Lincoln, who's one of the most decorated presidents, he actually lived with severe um, major depression throughout his life, but he also had his own gatekeeper. And so really when I talk about QPR, it's really that gatekeepers or anybody in the community, and gatekeepers are really those important people that can connect people to the help that they need, even, even people like Abraham Lincoln. Um, and ultimately, I just want to address that suicide is, 
a subject that is just uh, so nuanced and there's, a, of course, been so much research. But if we just ask these questions and really uh, employ you know, empathy and we're genuine and we're talking to people um, just about you know, how they're feeling, asking them, are you okay? Um, and really asking genuinely because often when we ask people, are you okay? What's the response? Yeah, so, yeah they'll say fine. But if we ask that person, you know, two times, three times, and we sit down with just anybody, not uh, in those of a crisis, but maybe, you know, they're just having, they can have either a good day or a bad day, we're employing QPR. So we can get to that next step. We can connect them to help. Does anybody have any questions? Yeah. Yeah. So you said in one of the previous slides that you are not supposed to judge them off and them help or anything like that. So when you ask mm -hmm. them if they want to go get help and then they say no, mm -hmm. what do you do? Because you can't tell them. No, you, no, you can't. Oh, oh you do? No. Um, so in this case, too, you can kind of redirect the conversation and ask them in another way, is there something else that we can do if they don't want to get help directly? Unless they're in a crisis. If they're in a crisis, you do you call 911, especially if they're immediate um, dangerous to themselves or anybody else around him. But if they don't want to get help immediately then, and again, because some people don't, you can redirect them to another source. So maybe redirect them to a number, um, redirect them to someone else that you think can help them as well too. Because oftentimes, if maybe somebody doesn't want to get help directly, maybe they think you might not be the right individual that they want to talk to, but you can connect them to the right individual. Okay, but thank you that would give you advice. You can say, um, is there anybody else that you would like to talk to? Because you're not giving them advice directly, but you're asking them, um, you're just kind of querying them, is there anybody else that we can talk to together, or maybe somebody else that you'd like to talk to alone? And that's not that good advice. And then how would you know when to call 911 or not? Really, if that person um, really exhibits any of those behavioral clues immediately, or if they're a danger to themselves or anybody else, honestly. But if you think that, in this case too, that a person may not be immediate danger, you can actually give uh, a performer welfare check. And so um, there's actually, in the Twin Cities, St. Paul, Minneapolis, there's a non-emergency 911 number that you can call. And actually any, um, there again, plaintiff's officer can check in on that person too. If you think that they're you know, not in the stages of a crisis, they do need to be checked upon. Like you would call yeah. and say, I'm really worried about my friend or my family member, they're not answering the phone. Yeah. Could you go by and just do a welfare check so they'll go to the house and check mm -hmm. on them? Does that like make it so that they're mad at you now? That you <laughs> not necessarily, no. Because um, I know in that case too, um, after you think that somebody would be mad or upset. But um, in most cases, even through research, but individuals I've talked to as well too, really when a person has shown that you know somebody else cares about them, it's really now that they feel that you know they can get the help that they need. I, I think too, like yeah. as, as a therapist, I would rather mm -hmm. somebody be mad at me than mm -hmm. me just be worried that they're going to be mad and not <coughs> then something else happen. Does that make sense? Yeah, I guess but being mad at. That was kind of a selfish way to put it, but it, no, it, would, no, it no. would burn the relationship so you wouldn't be able to, like, you wouldn't be them. Right. You know what I mean? Like, right. <laughs> they would never open up to you after that. Right, practice. right. Do you have any other questions? Yeah. Um, I'm just curious, 
Well, so I know because in some situations that does happen, but you say rather you save a life um, than have, I guess, and Nicole was saying, then not, you know, saving a life and that relationship with person may be burned. Um, but it's again, that person's getting help with it. I know that's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a hard kind of subject to wrap around, wrap your mind around because you're, you're thinking, I really want to help this person. I don't want a relationship to suffer, but in that instance, that relationship, it might have to. I think if you're that worried and that scared that someone is going to hurt themselves, it makes sense to call versus them being mad or not talking. We have like, it's like a couple minutes before the hour, so. Okay, I have one question over here and then I have another question over here. Yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to mention, uh, we, uh, my brother and, and my mom, we kind of dealt with like bipolar and suicidality. My brother's been hospitalized like several times. So my mom and my sister's part of the, well, my sister kind of works with a board for the mental health group. So she knows about like the mobile support. But I just wanted to mention that we attended your guys' like a uh, NAMI's uh, safe talk on Thursday. And they kind of delved more a little bit into it because they like show videos about what to say and not to say. So I thought it was three hours. I thought it was uh, really good. I think it was really helpful. Okay. Oh, so I just wondered. I don't know if you're, if no, you no, also teach you. that as well, or no, I don't oh. teach safe talk. Okay. Um, but it, yeah, that's actually a three-hour interactive workshop. And again, too, if you want to do more role playing, I know because this is more foundational. Yeah. That does give you kind of more idea on what things you can say or more positive messages as well too, as well. In in addition to um, the things that we talked about later on, earlier on today. So thank you. I appreciate it. And we've done that before with Camp Center in the last couple of years with the project and the safe talk, but it's something um, either one, if there's interest, we can try to schedule it and do it again with the community, and or you can go to NAMI and they have scheduled um, They do. Um, we have a, a few safe talks actually scheduled in August um, as well as September as well. If you go to our website mm -hmm. and under um, education, you can find suicide prevention and you can find safe talk. Yeah. Yeah, so just kind of piggybacking off, off, yeah. the, off all of this. I was just curious if Minnesota was a mandatory reporting state. It is, okay. yes. Um, there is mandatory reporting, especially um, for anybody in, you know, that works with youth, of course, um, but anybody that has indicated that they are suicidal. And it falls under the Good Samaritan Act okay. as well, too. So um, if anybody isn't aware of what the Good Samaritan Act to an individual, um, you know, in this case, if they're suicidal, if they're harmed themselves or to others, um, but you know, post negatively on you, you won't, um, of course, be um, liable for anything against yourself. Yeah. Here. Yep. Okay. Uh, is the rate of suicide up in the last ten years uh, due to more guns in the community in general? You know. That I, actually, I don't know. Um, I can find that out for you. But in, in this case, there's a number of factors that they associated with their rates of suicide going up, particularly. Um, in, in Minnesota, um, but again, it's cross-culturally. Um, depends on race, it depends on gender, and on age as well, too. Um, but I can talk to you later about some of the statistics. Yeah. What can churches do in terms of the prevent from suicide? So can say, what can churches do well, about um, the suicide? Sorry, pardon me? Okay. I was going to well, actually, I was going to say that um, beyond scheduling and training, too. Uh, there's really when I talk about, because um, I've given this presentation a couple times in churches, 
um, when it comes to the pastor, um, if the pastor is, uh, as we see, suicide prevention trainings, um, often to um, one of the pastors I talked about talked to, he said he he uses his sermons as well um, in order to kind of talk to the congregation more just about suicide and just kind of stigma surrounding it as well too. So kind of having um, either say really that pastor or even members of the congregation talking to them about gatekeeper training um, is really key. Suicide prevention. I think um, yeah. um, Elder Palm actually made question really good point, especially for Korean community. Mm-hmm. You know, not just the suicide. Even we can't get into the suicide mm-hmm. talking. You know, we just say, oh, we are going to have a mental health awareness. You know, uh, workshop. Nobody shows up. Nobody shows up. You know, if you show up. Oh, do they have? Does he have mental problem? <laughs> you know, I'm admitting I'm having a mental problem. You know, I want to learn to help others, but you know, they look at me that way. So you know, it's a stigma. They are not coming. Only thing we did so far for the Korean community is parenting education, mother school, father school, and then we just sneak in that this kind of topic, but not openly discuss. So that's still our uh, ongoing stigma and the problem mm-hmm. as the leaders, the gatekeepers of the community. Uh, but I really want to know, learn how the other communities are doing to to let everybody uh, have some thoughts about this kind of serious problem of the society. You know, our church mm-hmm. has come in a societal problem, not problem, the instance. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's it's there. It's there in the society and community and our, even our church. But it's just that we do not want to talk about it. And often, too, if we have kind of more of an open dialogue, um, and now maybe we try to have what are called community conversations, so we invite members of the community to talk about mental wellness. We won't really uh, address that it is about, um, so primarily mental illness, but when that dialogue and that conversation about mental wellness, it generally holistically transgress into something um, about mental illness, about suicide. So people are more really apt to open up in kind of those spaces too, where they feel that they feel more maybe more connected. Even spaces like church as well too, but spaces where they feel really safe. Um, if it's outside of this church, in this case, too, as well. Um, so I say another suggestion is having kind of a community conversation or a dialogue um, but, um, on mental wellness instead of just, say, on mental illness. I kind of a start, too. I have a different question. Uh, in a, when you see the advertisement or just the label of the depression medication, there is one side effect many of the side effects there, but one of them is suicidal thought. And a depression medication has side effect of suicidal depression, I mean, the thoughts. Why is it like that? Depression medication is supposed to, you know. <laughs> I can actually talk about, if we want to, we can, we can have a conversation too. Yeah, well afterwards. because I, I have a, a, my, one of my elderly clients uh, began to take the depression medication a week later all of a sudden he is gone 
So he, he was gone. So, you know, many people thought that could be effect of the side effect of depression medication, but nobody challenged it, nobody studied it. So it is a buried case. Uh, but, you know, in that case, how do we prevent? It's my question for the last four years since he died. That one I can, I, I will definitely okay. But lastly, too, I know I have to wrap this up. Uh, there is an evaluation on your table, front and back. If you could fill it out, put it at the front, that would be really appreciated. But I thank you for your time. I know we didn't have Right now, my wife asked you, mm -hmm. so I ask all of you, uh, Korean community, they are suicidal problem. They lie to me or lie to pastor or make a secret. If you mention that one, they cut your relationship. So even pastor, cannot approach until they open up. Sometimes a medical school professor, sometimes it's ordinary people. It's a shame, Korean culture, they hide, lie, don't open. So this is growing. So my challenge, I'm pastor, how can educate so my question to you, Nami has any culturally sensitive person training or role model church to increase awareness level and prevent suicidal benefit for ordinary people? Yes, actually, um, so it's not within the community community, because I work out a lot too, of course, the African American community, but in um, North Minneapolis, there is a, a church, I'm sorry, I don't remember the name, but they have a mental health ministry, and so actually uh, about twice a week, we have a congregation come and just kind of have, again, that open session, that open dialogue, mm -hmm. um, just about anything that individuals are feeling, and they've had to, that connection to, it's intergenerational, so we'll have to invite you. But just anybody in the community to have that kind of open conversation. And it has spurred individuals to talk more openly, especially too, because it's probably, again, in the African American community that people don't want to talk about suicide, talk about mental illness, they just want to cover it up because it's so, sh so shameful. But if they have that safe space to talk about it, more apt, and they're more as, as well too, they can identify people that they will want to talk to. So I can connect you to that resource as well. Yes, I need Yes. Um, thanks again, uh, Caroline, for the presentation. She mentioned if anyone wanted a CEU, there's a form up, up at the front, so go ahead and take that. Um, and then also please complete the survey, and then just, you can put them up at the front on the table. Anyway, um, she'll collect those. And then we'll take a break for the next, uh, like, five, eight, ten minutes, maybe. Um, and then we're going to, after, when you guys come back, so there are some cookies and coffee and stuff for a little snack real quick. 
Um, 